number one. As we mentioned, we will begin a new series of lessons this morning, and we expect to continue over the next several weeks and work our way verse by verse, not through the entire book of James, just this first chapter, um, which was the Bible memory passage for last month's youth rally. So I trust these verses are familiar to you. Many of you did quote the chapter, recite the chapter in its entirety. Hope that you'll not just learn it one time, say it one time, not go back to it, not review it. Spend some time from time to time and review these verses and make sure they get lodged in your mind and in your heart. And this morning we're not going to read the entire chapter just for sake of time, but if we were to to work our way through the chapter, we'll just glance at the verses. It is evident why we chose this passage for memorization assignment for the youth rally. The chapter addresses a number of topics that are quite pertinent to the Christian life and perhaps especially for a Christian in the stage of life in which you find yourself this morning as a teenager, as a young person. Just look at the chapter. Verses 2 through 4 address trials and temptations. Verse 5 speaks of wisdom and the acquisition of it. Verse Verses 6 and 7 address believing prayer. In verse number 8 is the salient verse on double-mindedness. Verses 9 through 11 are a discussion of uh, rich and poor. In verses 13 through 16, we have temptation. In verses 17 and 18, the will of God. In verses 19 through 21, the hearing and receiving of Scripture. In verses 22 to 25, the hearing and doing of Scripture. And then in verses 26 and 27, we have vain and true religion. So as we work through this passage, those are the topics that we're going to study together in the weeks ahead. Uh, But this morning, all we'll do is introduce you to the human penman of the book here in James chapter 1 and verse 1, and then uh, some practical truths we learn from this verse. So the Bible says in James 1.1, James, servant of God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. When we write a letter today, we start with a greeting and we end with a signature. Dear Lauren, love David, right? The writer signs off at the bottom of the letter. This book of James is a letter. It is an epistle. And in these days, these times, the first century, the writer would identify himself at the outset. The, the, the love note that we referenced would go, David to the lovely Lauren, right? So, so, so James, the writer, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So the writer's identified, the audience is identified, and all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that. These These words we have in Scripture are the very words of God, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God used men to record the words that we find in the Bible. In this particular instance, it was a man by the name of James. I learned this as I was studying. I did not realize this before. James is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name, Jacob. And the name James appears 42 times in the New Testament. What is interesting is that there are three different men in the New Testament who go by that name. We'll review these 
quickly then move into the practical portion of our lesson. First of all, we have James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of John, James and John. Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, sons of thunder. They were fishermen, much like Andrew and Simon. So James, the son of Zebedee, he's one of the original 12, not only one of the 12, he's one of the inner circle of three. When Christ went on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ visited the home of Jairus' daughter, he took with him Peter and James and John. This is that James, the brother of John, James, the son of Zebedee. Then you've got James, the son of Alphaeus. By the way, Zebedee is Z-E-B-E-D-E-E. Four E's, Z-E-B-E-D-E-E. James, the son of Alphaeus, A-L-P-H-A-E-U-S. James, the son of Alphaeus. In Mark 15, 40, he's called James the Less. This either means he was younger than the other James, but most people believe it means that he was shorter than the other James. In the Greek, his surname was Toma. (laughs) This James... Son of Alphaeus, also one of the twelve. This James had a brother by the name of Judas, who was also uh, one of the twelve. Then there's James, the Lord's brother. And I actually want you to look at this verse, Matthew 13 and verse 55. So we got James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the Lord's brother. Look at Matthew 13 and verse number 55. Move quickly through a few of these passages. Jesus is preaching and ministering in his hometown of Nazareth. And the people are astonished in verse 54. Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Verse 55, they asked, Is not this the carpenter's son? That's a reference to Joseph, Christ's stepfather. Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas. Now, Mary was a virgin at the time that Christ was conceived, but she went on and she married Joseph, and together they had other children. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, and one of her children is a man by the name of James. So that would be the Lord's brother, the Lord's half-brother. Now look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse number 5. John 7. In verse 5, uh, start at verse 3. His brethren therefore said to him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Speaking of Christ, his brethren saying this to him. Verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Isn't that interesting? The the half-brothers of Jesus Christ at this time did not follow him, did not believe in him, did not accept that he was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. You would think if you grew up in the home of somebody who never did anything wrong, who never said anything wrong, who never got in trouble, you would think you would... You'd think there's something special about them. Maybe they were just jealous. Maybe they were just a little bit bitter. But they did not believe in him, 
John chapter 7, verse 5. But that changed. Come to Galatians 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 19. Galatians 1 and verse 19. This is Paul recounting his testimony at the outset of this epistle to the churches of Galatia. In Galatians 1.19, the Bible says, But other of the apostles, so this is after uh, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he returns to Jerusalem in verse 18. He sees Peter, abides with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now that's an interesting turn of events because in John 7 verse 5, his brethren did not believe in him. By the time that Paul is converted and then later returns to Jerusalem, now James the the Lord's brother is counted among the apostles. And so he has had a change of heart. He has had a change of direction. He has had a change of life. So James the son of Zebedee, brother of John, James, the son of Alphaeus, the short guy, brother of Judas, and then James, the Lord's half-brother. We've got those three Jameses in the New Testament. Which of them is the author of the book of James? Well, let's see if we can determine that. Come to the book of Acts, chapter number 1. We'll trace these guys through the rest of the New Testament as best we can. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. There was a Bible conference a long time ago. And Mike Gibson, not sure how many of you know who Mike Gibson is. At the time, he was a missionary in St. Lucia. But he, he got up at the end of the Bible conference and he roasted our church, basically. He did a routine on, you might be from the Bible Baptist Church, if. And it was actually really funny, and you probably just had to be there. But one of the things was, you might be from the Bible Baptist Church, if you think the book of James is named after your pastor. That's not the James that we're talking about here in in the book of James. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Christ has just ascended back to the right hand of God. And the Bible says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John. So there's there's a son of Zebedee, right, with his brother John. And Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, we have two of the Jameses present. The son of Zebedee, the son of Alphaeus. The two who were part of the original 12 come to Acts chapter 12. Next time we, sh- we, we, we see James show up is in Acts chapter 12 and verse number 1. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Okay, so this is uh, the date given in, in my Bible is 42 A.D. The approximate date for the book of James is 60 A.D. So it is very likely that James, the brother of John, James, the son of Zebedee, is not the author of the book of James. He's been eliminated due to being executed by Herod in Acts chapter 
number 12. So we're down to two. Is it James the son of Alphaeus or James the Lord's brother? Look at verse number 12 of Acts 12. Remember, Peter is also going to be put to death, but uh, he is led by the angel out of the prison. He goes to the house where the church is assembled, uh, praying for him. And verse 12, when he considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose ceremony was Mark where many were gathered together praying. Peter knocked at the door of the gate, and a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. She knew Peter's voice, verse 14. She ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. They said to her, Thou art mad. She constantly affirmed that it was so. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren, And he departed and went into another place. From this point forward, it is is impossible to dogmatically distinguish between James the son of Alphaeus and James the Lord's brother. There is nothing internally in Scripture to verify whether this James that Peter references, who is obviously a leader among the early Christians is James the son of Alphaeus or James the Lord's brother. In Acts chapter 15, uh, there's that council in Jerusalem about the question of Gentiles believing and do they keep the law or do they not keep the law. And the decision was handed down, starting in verse 13, by James, who is evidently a leader among the apostles in the church at Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 9, James is singled out as a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, but it's not stated which James we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, there's a James who is singled out as an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He was seen of 500 brethren at once, uh, of Peter and of James also. We're not certain if that's James the Lord's brother or James the son of Alphaeus. What makes it even more difficult, next uh, item there in your outline, what makes it even more difficult is both of these Jameses had a brother by the name of Judas. James, the son of Alphaeus, had a brother named Judas. James, the Lord's brother, had a brother named Judas. And so the difficulty we're having in identifying the, the human penman of the book of James is the same difficulty that we experience trying to identify the human penman of the book of Jude. Was it Jude, son of Alphaeus, or Jude, the Lord's brother? We have the same question when we come to that epistle. What's interesting on top of that that I found as I was studying is the possibility that this James and Jude and that James and Jude... Not only are they two brothers by the same names, but the two sets could possibly be cousins. James, son of Alphaeus, Judas, son of Alphaeus, and James and Judas, the Lord's brothers, there's a possible connection between their mothers. Obviously, the Lord's brothers, mother Mary, and then uh, Alphaeus' wife. It looks like those two are sisters. Not only do we have James, the son of Alphaeus, not only do we have Judas, the son of Alphaeus, we also have Matthew or Levi, the other 12. He is also listed as a son of 
Alpheus. So when you get to reading about these names and trying to identify these characters, there's a lot more connections than you're aware of on the surface. There are so many similarities that some have suggested that this James and Jude and that James and Jude are actually the same James and Jude. But the way I know that is not the case is because of what we read in John chapter 7, where the Lord's brothers did not believe on him. And the James and Jude, son of Alphaeus, those were part of the original 12. Now, all of that is background. Let's go back to James chapter 1. So the answer to the question, who wrote the book of James, which James was it? All we know is that it was not James the son of Zebedee. The popular opinion is that it's James the Lord's brother who emerged as a leader in the church in Jerusalem beginning in Acts 12, also in Acts 15, is referenced in Galatians 2, also in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, But there's no way to really nail that down for sure according to Scripture. But let's see in the book how the author identifies himself. Read the verse again, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. So here's how the author identifies himself. Here's what the author wants us to know about him before anything else. He is a servant of God. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not identify himself as an apostle. He did not identify himself as one of the original 12, if that's the James that he was. He did not identify himself as the Lord's brother, if in fact that's the James who wrote the book. He identified himself as a servant. And the very clear indication and teaching for us this morning is that what's important is not who James is, What is important is who James serves. What's important is not who James is. What's important is who James serves. He is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you some definitions for a servant from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. A servant is a person that attends another for the purpose of performing menial offices or tasks for him, or who is employed by another for such offices or for other labor, other labor, sorry, for such offices or for other labor, and is subject to his command. You know, what a servant, a servant is one who just does what he's told. A servant is one who is there to do the things that other people don't want to do. A servant is there not to do big, grand, glorious things. A servant is there to do small, mean, trivial, little things, but to do them for the sake of the master. The word servant, the word servant correlates to the word master. You don't have a servant without a master. A servant differs from a slave. A servant differs from a slave. A servant's subjection to the master is voluntary. The slave's is involuntary. We are not slaves of God. 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are servants of God. This is something entered into by choice. This is a title that James took unto himself. A servant is not a slave. This is a voluntary position, a voluntary action. Servant is defined as a person who voluntarily serves another or acts as his minister, as Joshua was the servant of Moses, the apostles, the servants of Christ. So Christ himself is called a servant, Isaiah 42. Moses is called the servant of the Lord in Deuteronomy 34. A servant is a person employed or used as an instrument in accomplishing God's purposes. A person employed or used as an instrument in accomplishing God's purposes. James said, I want God to be able to use my life to do whatever he wants. And so I'm his servant. A servant is one who yields in obedience to another. The saints are called servants of God or of righteousness, and the wicked are called servants of sin. Unless I missed some derivation of the term, there are 212 references to servants or to serving in the New Testament. Serve is mentioned 33 times. Serves, 5 times. Serving, 5 times. Service, 15 times. Servant, 85 times. Servants, 69 times. And if my computer can do math, that's 212 references. So James chapter 1, verse 1, the, the human penman, the author of the book, identifies himself, James a servant of God. He's not the only one that introduced a New Testament book in that fashion. Romans 1.1 starts the same way. Philippians 1.1 starts the same way. Titus 1.1, 2 Peter 1.1, Jude 1.1 all begin James, Paul, Peter, Jude, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's see why it is the apostles so often spoke of themselves as servants. Come to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, the Trinity. The Trinity. Jesus Christ is God and the Son of God because these three are one. Three persons, one God. Jesus Christ is God in a human body. He, he humbled himself. He condescended. He came to earth in the form of a man, but he was God. He was divine. He was the creator, he is the eternal word who is in the beginning and made all things, John chapter 1. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God, but verse 7, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why do the apostles often refer to themselves as servants? Well, they are disciples. They are followers of Jesus Christ. And that is the example that was set by the Son of God 
though he was God, he humbled himself, he took a place of service, he took the role of a servant, he subjected his will to the Father's will, he walked and lived in obedience to his Father, and so if we are to follow Christ and he was a servant, then we're going to have to take the place and position of a servant as well. Come to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Christ instructed his disciples along these lines. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Mark 10, 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. They're trying to get the answer before they ask the question. Right? They haven't asked the question yet. Uh, Jesus, will you give us whatever we want? <laughs> well, you've got to tell me what it is that you want. Will you do me a favor? You ever go to somebody? Will you do me a favor? That's a little bit unfair. You better let them know what the favor is before they give the answer. You better be careful answering that question. You don't want to commit yourself to something that you don't want to be committed to. Anyway. So verse 36, and he said unto him, what would ye that I should do for you? Jesus Christ exercised uh, a lot of wisdom here in verse 36, not surprisingly. Verse 37, they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand, the other on thy left hand in thy glory. <laughs> Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, we want to be right at your side. Now, I mean, there's an element of that that is honorable and that is noble. They want to be close to the Lord. But as I read it, I feel like there's an element of that that is a little bit proud and self-conceited. We want to be right there with you. We want to be the most important uh, rulers in your kingdom. They were asking to sit on the right hand and left. Jesus said unto them, verse 38, You know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We can. Jesus said to them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, of the baptism that I am baptized with all. Shall ye be baptized? But to sit on my right hand on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Why were they mad? Because they also wanted to sit on Jesus' right hand or his left hand. They were constantly arguing among themselves who was the greatest human nature. It's been the same for 6,000 years. Verse 42, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are counted rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It is, it is rather ironic that they would discuss among themselves who was the greatest when they were in the presence of Jesus Christ. <laughs> because it was very obvious who was the greatest, and it wasn't any of them. It was far and away the Lord from glory who is dwelling among men. But you know what? The greatest among them, the one who is actually the greatest, you know what he did? He served. He ministered. He made his life not about how many would serve him, but how many he would serve. He laid down his life for the sake of others. And that's the example he set. That's the example he wants 
his people to follow. If, if you want to be great, here's how to be great. Serve as many people as you can. Get under as many people as you can. You're not getting over. You're not exercising authority. You're not exercising lordship. You're not, um, you're not establishing your dominance. It's not how Christianity works. James, a great leader in the church at Jerusalem, James, a great apostle of the Lord, James, an author of Scripture, James, a half-brother potentially of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, who are you? I am a servant. I am a servant of God. I'm here to do what God wants me to do. I'm here to walk in obedience to my master. I am here to subject my will. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. I want to be an instrument, a vessel that he can use. James, a servant of God. Let me quickly, in the last five minutes, give you a number of characteristics of a servant. We won't have time to run all of these uh, this morning, you need to make a correction in your notes. It's not Matthew 28, verse 9. It's Matthew 8, verse number 9. Let me give you these characteristics. We'll go back and, and touch on as many of them as we can. A, obedience. Obedience. B, faithfulness. Faithfulness. C, is humility. Characteristics of a servant are obedience, faithfulness, humility. D is fervency. Fervency. Letter E is reverence. F is loyalty. G is thankfulness. Obedience, faithfulness, humility, fervency. Reverence, loyalty, thankfulness. In the New Testament, those are the things that characterize a servant. The reference in Matthew 8 and verse 9 is to the centurion who was a man under great authority. And he had servants. And if he said, do this, they did it. And he had a servant who was sick. He wanted the servant healed. But the obvious implication is that a servant is obedient to the master. And so obedience is a characteristic of a servant. Faithfulness. Moses was a faithful servant in Hebrews 3 and verse 5. In Luke 19, 17, a servant must be faithful in that which is little. Humility is a characteristic of a servant. In John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, setting an example for them of the kind of humble service that they were to uh, follow. And display. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse number 11. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 11. This is fervency. Romans 12 verse 11. The Bible says not slothful in business. You know what slothful is? It's slow. It's lazy. It's one gear. It's hardly moving. It's, come on, when you got to get going? Picture a sloth and how slowly those things move. There's a great sermon about that. Those things are disgusting. Okay, Not slothful in business. Look at this. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know what fervent means? It means, it means hot. It means 
fast. It means devoted. You think of a servant, you don't think of someone just moseying around. You think of someone who is busy, someone who is moving. When I go to a restaurant, I don't want my waiter to be walking slowly. I don't want my waiter to be uh, sitting on the edge of the wall and and looking at his phone. I, I enjoy somebody who's hustling, who's moving, who wants to make sure that all of their customers are taken care of, make sure that all of the drinks are full, make sure the food gets out when it's hot. And if that, that kind of guy, he's moving, he's hustling, he's fervent. That's what a servant is supposed to be. Are you a servant of God? Is there any fervency to your Christian life? Is there any movement? Is there any direction? Is there any pursuit of the Lord? Is there any fervency about your service? A, a, a servant is fervent. A servant is reverent. Hebrews 12, 23, we should serve with reverence and godly fear. Loyalty, that's the Matthew 6 passage. No man can serve two masters. You've got to decide. You've got to make up your mind. You can't serve God and fill in the blank. He's got to have priority. He's got to be the center of this thing. I do want to show you this last passage, Luke 17, thankfulness. I found this very interesting. Luke 17 verse number 7. Luke 17, verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him, By and by, when he's come in from the field, go and sit down to meat, and will not rather say to him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken. And afterward, thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. That's the Bible equivalent. I don't think so. So likewise ye, verse 10, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. Unprofitable servant. Okay? The servant did what is expected. The servant did what he was told. And, and Jesus said, well, that's an unprofitable servant. And that's honestly to me a little bit confusing what is the meaning here why is this servant unprofitable because of i mean he, he did what he was supposed to do he was obedient he put the master first and i don't know maybe the implication is you're supposed to go above and beyond the call of duty but i find something else in the passage dictated by the context because if we continue reading look what happens verse 11 jesus is passing through the midst of samaria and galilee Verse number 12, there's some lepers standing afar off. Verse 13, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, have mercy. Verse 14, he said to them, go show yourselves the priest. came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save the stranger... He said to them, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. This is interesting to me. Right after Jesus tells this parable about the unprofitable servant, the next item in the passage is Jesus healing ten lepers. And he tells them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And all of them go. They do what Jesus said to do, but one of them returned and gave thanks. 
Maybe what takes the servant from the level of being an unprofitable servant to being a profitable servant is not just the servant who grudgingly does what the Lord asks, who grudgingly follows in obedience, but does so with a thankful heart and a grateful heart and stops every now and then to offer praise and thanksgiving to the master simply for allowing him a place in his service, a servant exhibits thankfulness. Now, James chapter 1 verse 1 says, James, a servant of God. He was obedient, all right? He was faithful. He was humble. He was fervent. He was reverent. He was loyal. He was thankful. I want to ask you this question to ask yourself as we finish this morning. If this book were written of you, And if you were called upon to identify yourself, if the Holy Spirit was inspiring your words and they had to be true, how would your life be identified? Fill your name in, the first word, a servant of, and what would come next? To whom or to what are you obedient and faithful and humble and fervent and reverent and loyal and thankful Who or what do you serve? There's so much in the New Testament about service we can't get to this morning. But it's not a matter about whether or not you serve. It's a matter of who or what you serve. And I hope we'll follow James' example and be a servant of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's truth. God, I pray that uh, you would help us to apply this to our lives. Thank you for your word. We love you. In Jesus' name.